What's Boston? Welcome to season five, episode nine of Siren Sundays with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren. This show is focused on speaking with researchers, scientists, and practitioners of environmental science and all things conservation. You are now tuning into the Conservation Conversation, and today's guest is Dorlin Curtis Jr. Welcome, Dorlin. Hey, Lashanti. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. I know this is the second time that you've been on the show in the same season. So can you reintroduce yourself? What's your name? What do you do and where are you working at? So my name is uh, Dolan Curtis uh, Jr. I am currently one of the co-founders of Food Post Farms in North Eleuthera. Um, a lot of my work, um, just kind of outside the farm, I'm also assistant director of research at the Cape Luther Institute. Um, so at the Allen School. So I have um, been doing mostly my work in mycology and waste management, um, kind of been dabbling in material design and sustainable materials. Um, so um, my kind of area of study or looking at um, how do we actually produce uh, materials from um, just bio um, waste. And most of like the work that I currently focus on on the farm is looking at the general agricultural system. So um, how do we incorporate essentially green waste and food waste into actually um, repurposing and recycling into uh, fortifying our food systems? So yeah, but kind of, uh, you know, day to day, um, besides, you know, being at the Island School with Food Post Farms is, you know, our, what we currently do there is obviously um, focusing on egg production and then looking at just recycling green waste primarily. So, yeah. So, share this again, because I know you did the last episode, but right here as far as like your education experience. Pardon? Your journey to this point here? Oh, so my journey to this point. So, I grew up in Nassau, and, you know, as, you know, most, um, I guess, living on an island, you know, my experience with education or getting here was just constantly being bombarded with weight. So I spent a lot of my summers on Harbor Island. Um, one of the key things is, you know, on this, um, there was a huge landfill that was in the end of Harbor Island. And that was kind of always a site for sore eyes living there. Um, then I went off to school in Yangsung, Ohio. Um, I did a degree in chemical engineering, you know, with hopes of eventually coming back and working in renewable energy. Um, and working with just um, ethanol production. That didn't quite pan out the way as planned, you know, thinking about, you know, bioenergy in the Bahamas, that really wasn't something that was a huge focus, you know, when I graduated college. Um, so after that, you know, going off to move to upstate New York um, at, um, in Syracuse, and I started this master's program in paper and bioprocess engineering. And that kind of like, you know, drawn me into the world of sustainability and looking at, you know, understanding the problems that we had in the Bahamas um, when we talk about green waste and this project or this course um, and that degree allowed me to kind of marry, you know, my passion for wanting to find solutions to green waste and like looking at technology. So a lot of my research focused on how do we actually convert like waste casarina into like um, fermentable sugars. And so those sugars that you would essentially produce from casarinas, you can feed to bacteria or to fungi, and they can produce things like plastics or things like biofuels. Okay. Um, I got excited. I was like, sugar, like for my tea? But no. Yeah, well, not like, not like sucrose, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, materials, they do have lignocellulose. So like, you know, just hemicellulose, cellulose, lignin, kind of the primary structure of like plant materials. But once you separate that, then you can actually start fermenting or making bioproducts. Kind of fast forwarding, um, you know, a few years ago, moving back to the Bahamas and looking for work in sustainability. Um, you know, I started worm farming um, when I first moved back to the Bahamas. And that was a rather interesting thing because my parents were like, why are all these worms in my backyard? You know, tubs of just composting worms. Um, you know, and then after I did that for about a year, I ended up working at the Island School. And, you know, when I moved to Lutra, um, I met my uncle and, you know, we were 
I kind of stumbled upon his farm and he was composting already. And so, you know, my journey from, you know, growing up to here in education was not quite linear. It was just a lot of things kind of fell into place with like passion and opportunity. Um, and then in terms of incorporating my worm systems on my uncle's farm, I think that kind of allowed us to be a little bit more diversified in processing waste. So yeah, a roundabout way of how did I get here, I guess. Yeah. yeah. No, but I love when you said passion opportunity. I actually had to quickly type that because that's, I don't know, something about that phrase just sounds really nice. But so I know you mentioned it in the last episode, but what was your inspiration for starting Food Post Farms? Um, so my inspiration, so, um, so Food Post Farms, as it's known, so it was actually my uncle and his partner, Sophie, so my uncle Richard Johnson, um, you know, they, he operated the North Luther Landfill at one point. And so he was always in waste management, um, always worked in like farming. Um, my family, you know, they were a family of like fish pot makers. So they would actually make fish pots from hand and fish and like farm. So they were always like kind of in the, in the sector of like agriculture. And so my uncle had a goat as well as a pig farm. And then, you know, after he retired from waste management, you know, him and his partner, they opened this, you know, this egg farm to produce eggs for themselves, that kind of became, you know, a very popular thing because everybody wanted like fresh local eggs. Yeah. So what they ended up doing was bringing in about 300 birds from the US to kind of start producing eggs for Harbor Island. And that grew like really quickly, um, you know, a huge learning opportunity in terms of understanding animal husbandry mm -hmm. and, you know, how does sustainable agriculture work with livestock? So that started as just kind of a small chicken farm. My uncle was obviously composting as a way to manage the farm's waste. Um, you know, in raising um, chickens, you produce quite a lot of manure, which most people don't understand. Uh, so that was a integrated system that we had. Um, and as I mentioned, when I moved back to Eleuthera, I moved to Eleuthera in 2019, you know, my mom was like, you should go and see your uncle. He's raising these chickens. So I'm like, you know, sure. So I went to see and I was just kind of amazed because they built this kind of farm oasis in the Caucasus forest. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I really think, you know, the work that you do is cool. And I want to incorporate, you know, my earthworm farming into this um, venture. And so the food post at that point was called SNR Farming. And then, you know, we kind of had to take a step back and understand, you know, what exactly is this farm achieving? You know, so the two core things that we focused on was producing food and compost, you know? And so by definition, we kind of came across this name of food post farms and that's kind of how it was created by, you know, oh, compost, food post. so that's kind of hybridizing like food production with composting. So, yeah. yeah. And so I'm really interesting enough. Um, and I know I didn't ask this in the pre, when I said discussion points, but your logo. Uh, so I see there's an earthworm in it. Can you talk a bit about your logo? Like what, what cause is that roots there? Is it some ocean waves? Like what's, what's in your logo? So in the logo, so this logo is actually designed by Alan. Um, I think you have it in the slides. Maybe I should pop those up. Um, not a, well, yeah, it's probably in the- In the, yeah. So- but it's up there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the logo, it's crazy because you always determine like what's in a name, you know, mm -hmm. and your visual identity is important. So, you know, I was speaking with Alan, you know, um, kind of as a partner in a business venture about, you know, food post. And I was just kind of going through and understanding like, what do I want to visually represent the brand of the company? And, you know, in the element of the logo, we have earthworms because, you know, they are one of the primary recyclers in nature and they help with soil health. Mm -hmm. And then the things that you see are waves can either be like kind of pasture or like cover cropping or like the ocean. Because technically we are a farm that's like right across from a mangrove ecosystem. Oh. And then that full circle is kind of a representation of, you know, growing full circle from the soil to the land, back into the soil. And that actually is a palm tree or a palm branch that actually Oh. Um, perimeter. So yeah. Nice. So it was just kind of a play <laughs> on like the elements that we want to visually represent and that we believe in the farm. So yeah. So 
do you want to jump into the slideshow or do you want to talk a little bit about what the concept of regenerative agriculture systems is? Is that in the PowerPoint? Um, I think we can talk a little bit more about regenerative agriculture and like, yeah. Um, so what is that? I got that question from um, uh, when I put the flyer out. Someone was like, what is that? What is regenerative agriculture? And I was like, you should tune in on Sunday to find out. <laughs> um, so regenerative agriculture, um, you know, it is, there's a couple school of thoughts as to, you know, you know, what that actually means, but kind of in just like a broad definition of regenerative agriculture, when you think about regeneration, it's like the renewing or the rebuilding of like a system. And so, you know, regenerative agriculture is basically a method of farming that involves like restoring or regenerating like our natural ecosystems. And, you know, that's primarily emphasizing soil or organic matter um, as a core like belief of agriculture. So a lot of our agricultural or traditional or industrial commercial agriculture systems, the soil is never really important. You know, it's always focusing on like producing food, like let's produce crops quick as possible. You know, it's very intensive in terms of utilizing um, pesticides and organic fertilizers and herbicides. But when you think about it, regenerative agriculture, we actually look at adding soil um, and organic matter back into the soil um, it focuses a lot on like biodiversity, which in turns um, helps with like carbon sequestration and improving the water cycle as well as like adding in like um, climate change uh, mitigation. So regenerative agriculture kind of as a concept, it's just a method of like farming that emphasizes soil health and restoring um, our like natural ecosystems. So, you know, our agriculture systems, like they are still a part of nature. Yes. And I think that is the issue is that we see agriculture as like removed from nature. And that is sometimes the issues that we have with like commercial agriculture. And, you know, when we think and we bring in the um, issues of climate change, um, you know, the agricultural sector is actually one of the most um, polluting or at least con contributors to like greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. So that is one thing that, you know, regenerative agriculture seeks to like at least reverse or at least help with like sequestering carbon into the soil. So, yeah. That is interesting. I do find that when people think about like the environment and nature, when you bring up the topic of agriculture, it does seem very othered. And we really should be thinking about how to incorporate that properly into the environment rather than treating it as if it's creating its own sort of like ecosystem. Um, so yeah, that is super important because I find that, you know, you see some farms, maybe even just around Nassau, where the first thing they do is just clear all the land out. Yeah. Like, and they remove all of the, like any sort of hilly structures, they mess up the soil, like they add things on top of the soil. And it's like, wow, this is like a barren land right now. And that'll end up being like livestock and other things like that. But yeah, I think it is important that, that people who get into agriculture, even if it's just gardening in your home like make sure you incorporate it into the actual environment and ecosystem that you're already in um all right so one of the things um before we jump into the slides how would you say your farm is different from maybe other sorts of farms around the Bahamas? um yeah so going back a little bit too into like you know just regenerative agriculture as a system or as a practice you know so you know some of the core principles that we um that's you know, the pillars or the foundation of regenerative agriculture, you know, one of the first principles is obviously keeping the soil covered. Um, you know, that's super important because when you think about nature or living systems, everything has a barrier protection. You know, we as human beings, we have skin to protect us from obviously losing moisture or from external elements. You know, sheep, they have wool to keep them warm. Birds have feathers, obviously, to keep their bodies, their body temperature regulated, etc. But what does nature have, you know? And the primary thing that nature has to keep it covered, the soil covered are, are plants, you know? And so one of the key principles is thinking about keeping the soil covered, you know, integrating livestock, um, you know, they are a part of like the natural environment. You know, they drop manure, they help to fertilize, they help to add more organic matter and bacteria to the soil, um, you know, maintaining living roots year round. So you know, sometimes when people come to our farm, they say, there's a bunch of weeds here, you know? And, you know, what you don't understand is like, you know, plants that are in the ground, 
you know, they're able to photosynthesize to bring carbon out of the out of the air and put it back into the soil, you know, minimizing soil disturbance. So going back to like when you talked about clearing the land in Nassau, for example, you know, we have a tendency to just clear everything. Um, but, you know, trying to minimize the amount of soil that we disturb, because as soon as you disrupt that, you're disrupting all the microbial um, populations under the soil. You're actually sometimes releasing CO2 back into the environment. Um, you know, also thinking about crop diversity is important. Like, you know, in nature, there are no monocultures to some degree. So, you know, crop diversity is a super important thing. And then understanding the context of your farm operations. So for us, what makes us different is that, you know, we do integrate livestock. So we what traditionally have free ranging chickens that will um, help to fertilize the areas that we grow. Um, you know, we practice a lot of cover cropping. So whenever a bed is like, let's just say we're turning over a bed, we would always put cover crop like beans or like okras or things like, you know, alfalfas or less like grasses. And that kind of helps to keep the soil cool. You know, as you go into the summer, if you leave the soil barren, it washes away, it gets really hot. Um, and then what we focus heavily on is composting at our farm. You know, I don't think it's unique to us per se, but I think that is at the forefront of what makes us um, kind of just stand out is that composting not only for us is a way to manage our farm's waste, but it actually is a way for us to grow all of our crops. So we incorporate a lot of earthworms into helping to break down things like our manure from our rabbits or our chickens. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, have, we do have rabbits. Yeah, meat rabbits, but you know. Um, is it meat and, rabbits? Yes. Like so, to eat? Yeah, so we use rabbits um, to eat. You know, everything that's on the farm is for consumption. Okay. Um, they are also great because they do help their rabbit manure does help with like our gardens as well. Um, so it's everything in our farm is integrated. So there's nothing really operating in a silo. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the one thing that we um, makes this kind of unique is that our entire farm, it's a part of the larger system of like the coppice, but also even within the farm, our manure system is related to our composting system, which is now related to our vegetable beds, and then that is obviously used to grow cover crops and now go feed the rabbits or the chickens. So I think that is one thing that, you know, that farms everywhere should be doing more of is right. kind of integrating um, nature and like these principles of regenerative agriculture into their um, operations. So, yeah. so one of the things that I thought about when you were talking about you guys manage your waste a bit differently, I know of something that I've seen done on some farms around Nassau is they will start pulling up a bunch of, I guess, some branches and things, they'll burn it. <laughs> is like, yay or nay, is that even good to do on a farm? To start I, would burning? Say, I would say nay, um, <laughs> you know, um, the only benefit I would say of like burning um, wood or like leaves is that you get ash. And you know, for plants that might need like high potassium, that's like a very mm. cheap free source of ash. But when you're burning organic material like wood and leaves, like that's carbon you're losing. So now you're now adding more CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. Mm. I mean, oftentimes smoke, if you're living in an urban environment, like so it, does add, it kind of, you know, um, is it affects the air quality. And then, you know, you're not actually building an environment to actually put carbon back into the soil. So you're losing carbon by burning that. Um, what we usually do with like, any rubbish or green debris, we would simply just mulch that or chip it. And then that's then used either to cover the soil as a living mulch or mm -hmm. help to keep the soil protected, or that's then used in our composting systems or like in animal bedding. So that's like, I would say a huge no-no in a regenerative agriculture system right. is actually burn green waste. That's like, I mean, that's a form of natural currency is, you know, biomass soil. Right. And so I'm going to the slide, I promise. But now I have another question since you mentioned the rabbits. Do you have any challenges with managing all these different animals in this space? Like, do you ever have like a chicken and a rabbit fight? <laughs> like, <do> no. <laughs> so, I have to see this farm. Like, I, I need to visualize how you're doing all these things. 
Okay. So when we first started, um, the only livestock we had at the time, you know, we had chickens, you know, they were free ranging. And so we had designated areas where they would actually run. Um, you know, it became pretty difficult. You know, my uncle is pretty much the primary person on the farm and throughout the week I work um, in South Luto. So that's about two hours away, you know, wow. and so I commute every weekend back to the north to help with the farm. And wow. you know, we, uh, you know, we did a few courses on just poultry management. And we did a course with Cardi and Moni Luthera. And, you know, we were always trying to think about how do we still get the benefits of livestock, you know, in a very minimal input and, you know, thinking about space. So we had naturally transitioned to kind of like these um, layer cage systems. So the way that we were able to like integrate both rabbits and chickens into our farm um, was through like housing them in these layer cage systems. And so that allowed us to basically have, let's say, 300 chickens in an area that might be 20 by 30, you know, in a free range system, you know, they would traditionally like a, a lot of space. So for us, um, you know, that is one of the ways that we are able to help both rabbits and chickens are through just vertical integration of livestock. So, you know, giving them sufficient space, but um, with the layer cage system, you know, a lot of their droppings, their manure is basically, you know, if they fall on the floor, we're able to like carry it away and compost it effectively. Um, it's also easier to manage in terms of their egg collection. You know, the egg, the chickens aren't like pooping on the eggs or cracking them or breaking them. Yeah. But in terms of management, like that is kind of helped to maximize the efficiency of producing so many animals in such a little space, but also minimal human input because the big thing about running a farm is having labor to actually run the farm yeah um so yeah but yeah so we do have both um chickens and um, rabbits you know they're obviously in two separate systems yeah the rabbits are actually integrated in our earthworm systems so their manure basically falls to the bottom of the cage and then the earthworms come they eat that and then they basically poop out um something called worm castings that we would then use for um, making worm teas or composting teas or even to grow like a lot of our vegetables in. So it's a pretty cool concept, you know, yeah. thinking about um, integrating livestock into a farm. So, yeah. nice. so we will jump into the slides now. I'm so excited to hear you talk about some of these things. So what are we looking at here? So this is my uncle, um, Richard. Hey, uncle. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the one thing about our farm, we're literally less than a mile from the North Luther landfill, you know, so we operate on commonish land in North Luther. And, you know, when my uncle started, like I said, he was at one point the landfill manager. Um, you know, he managed um, waste operations in Tupper Island and well as North Luther. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after losing that contract, um, you know, the whole waste management system in North Luther became a huge problem as most people can, you know, attest to, where there was really no order um, at the landfill. So what you're looking at is one of the key problems that we currently face, not just with the farm, but kind of on a national level. Um, you know, you see things like palm fronds or green waste that are, that's like intermixed with like plastic or food waste or cardboard. And for us, it looks pretty messy, you know, but that also is a huge opportunity for farming as well as for just national development. And, you know, what we did when we started the farm is we actually built most of our farm from the dump. Like we used to go dumpster diving at the dump. People would be throwing away <laughs> like in plywood, you know, I consider the North Eleuther landfill the Home Depot of Eleuther. <laughs> because, you know, you have, you know, mega wealth on Harbor Island. So like hotels would throw away things and then it ends up at the landfill and they're still usable. So we would upcycle a lot of waste from the dump to actually build the infrastructure at the farm. And we would also try to recover as much green waste as possible from the dump as well. Um, but, you know, part of what we exist to do is to at least help to lobby change in terms of like waste segregation, because yeah not only will it benefit us as a farm because we can then get 
you know, grain waste or food waste delivered directly to the farm. But I think as, you know, small communities on Hover Island or North Luthra, they definitely can benefit from like just having a proper waste sorting program yeah. that's just standardized to like help create these smaller economies and also to, um, you know, prop up the agricultural sector. So, yeah, I think we have some other slides here. Um, and this is, like I said, everything is from literally my interactions in the landfill or in the dump. Um, went through a lot to take some of these images, like literally in the midst of like flies and burning waste. Um, for us, you know, just from observation, a lot of the food waste, a lot of things that we do see at these dump sites are is food waste, you know, just in terms of volume. Um, is this food waste everywhere in these dump sites? So you go there and there's like flies and rats and seagulls. And for us, that's kind of an environmental hazard. And, you know, what we are trying to stress or to emphasize is that, you know, this food waste, when it goes to a dump site, you know, that breaks down anaerobically and turns into methane. And I'm sure for everyone that works in like, you know, climate science or in just like in conservation or the scientists will tell you, mm -hmm. methane is actually one of the most potent greenhouse gases. And that's been directly contributing to you know, the climate um, change. And so for us, is just seeing the opportunities that, you know, composting or regenerative agriculture can have to actually reverse some of the effects that climate change has had on our environment. So, yeah. right. And I love that quote, feed our soils, not our landfills. We definitely, I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's so much, yeah. And then we do quite a lot of work, um, especially me when I have the time, um, you know, helping out with the Green Fridays at, um, the Harbor Island Green School. So they launched this um, initiative as part of their curriculum, Green Fridays. It was spearheaded by Crystal Ambrose, um, who we all know and love, um, at William Simmons. So on Fridays, um, this was about a year ago. So the groups of grades seven to nine, you know, they had looked at, you know, sustainability. And, you know, we would always welcome the students to come turn compost piles at times we would also collect food waste from the school compost it and then some of that compost would obviously end up back into the school gardens but mm. i personally enjoy having the students on the farm um i mean it's also helpful but i think too for to get the message out there that you know agriculture is important in terms of helping managing waste as well as like reversing the effects of climate change i mean the bahamas um you know composting i feel is a very low-tech way of like just creating these sustainable development avenues and then helping us meet some of these goals i'm on a national level but the students they always are very like enthused about the things that they find in these compost files or the foods that people throw away um yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. So. I love this picture. I love seeing that the kids are involved and that they're excited. <laughs> I mean, so much big personalities. So, yeah. But, um, and yeah, so like I said, we partner um, quite a lot with the Harbor Island Green School. Um, you know, the one thing I love about working with the students is that, you know, they're the ones that they get to see firsthand, you know, how this farm um, operates, you know, in terms of collecting green waste and food waste. And actually seeing like, you know, where does the waste go when it leaves the school? And, you know, they were able to come up with a three bin system for the school where they would collect like compost, which would be things like food waste, paper waste, any of their yard um, waste at the school. They would then have their aluminum um, category and then they had a general waste. So things that could not be recycled or things that couldn't be composted. So I think, you know, as a green school, like they were pretty great it was really great working with them you know and just kind of being like a you know just kind of a mentor for that particular group and that's kind of what i personally enjoy is not only as a farmer but as an educator um in terms of how can these things actually work yeah and so before i move on and i know because we've seen this is like forum just so far with kids do you find that you inspire particularly some of the younger men or boys that you interact with um, I would say, I would hope so. I mean, a lot of <laughs> kids, like, um, 
especially when I go back to hover around, they'd be like, oh, it's the it's the worm guy. I'm like, yep, that's <laughs> that's me. Um, you know, so I I think a I would hope, you know, um that I have inspired them to some degree in terms of how do we actively measure that? I mean, I think that's something that, you know, could be assessed on a longer term in terms of the impact of the interactions. But, you know, the metrics or the things that we can see is, you know, their willingness to either implement these systems, either at their homes or at the school. Um, also, just like my interaction sometimes when I go back to Hubbard Island is like the things that they would talk about or I would hear stories of them when they told their parents about what they learned on the farm. So I think, yeah. you know, there has been some level of, I would say, success in terms of influence. Um, and like I said, it's, even if it's just planting the seed that, you know, composting or just agriculture is something important, then I would feel happy that I've kind of did my job in terms of just instilling that small seed or that message. So, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you make it seem really cool and, and definitely a career field that could inspire them to maybe even be one day, you know? Um, oh. I mean, this is kind of, <laughs> so when we first started off, like we were actually breeding chickens, hatching them, um, you know, and thinking about, we talked about the human input in agriculture, like it, it was, it, it kind of became a lot like breeding chickens and like hatching. And so, while it was great, you know, throughout the pandemic when the world was kind of at a standstill and, you know, we did a lot of work um, with, you know, just rearing poultry, you know, I think for us was taking a step back and understand what do we currently do well? And like, let's kind of go forward with that. And so we obviously got this grant from the Access Accelerator. And so right now we're kind of in the position where we're now commercializing or starting a small commercial operation with um, chickens. So um, on the right um, is kind of an example of some of the battery cages that we currently house our chickens in. And for us, um, although it might not, you know, seem as, you know, lovely as chickens running on a pasture, you know, when we think about, you know, small island communities like Hubbard Island, for example, people don't have space to have free range chickens, but people still want eggs or people still want you know, protein or animal-based proteins. So for us, um, you know, we were able to like learn um, how to actually make these systems. So we actually made all of these cage systems by ourselves, you know, and now being able to, that's now a potential like, you know, industry that we are thinking about um, going into. But for us, we're able to produce livestock in, a, you know, a very small space, as well as it's a better system of like, you know, um, capturing the manure for our farm, for our garden, for our compost. And then it actually does help in terms of disease transmission. Like um, if people have not raised chickens before, like they would literally go and eat their own poop. And that is kind of where they get sick is through eating the manure or poop of other chickens, you know? And so- Wow. I mean, I would say gross, but that's kind of naturally, that's kind of what they do. You know, they would pack and they would, you know, they scratch. That's just part of their yeah. natural functions. And so, you know, if you have a sick, uh, chicken that's sick, that's pooping, you know, on the sick free range, always <laughs> then being transferred to other animals or to other birds in that flock. And so what we've noticed, you know, that these transition um, partially to these um, battery cage systems, like it's been a much more efficient way of managing the livestock and managing the manure. Um, it saves a lot of time with like washing eggs. Um, and it's also like we've had um, kind of low mortalities. And one of the key issues that we currently have in North Eleuther specifically is raccoons. And so mm. raccoons, they can't actually get in these cages. Lovely. So we've lost quite a lot of our flock to raccoons mm. in the past. So, yeah. So you said they can or they can't get in these cages? They can't. Okay, they, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I know you know I've spoken before about the the brutal <laughs> like the brutal raccoons. Like it's I didn't even realize they were that hardcore. Um, yeah. I didn't think that they would attack and or eat chickens, but yeah, so they are in a safer place now. So it's happy to see, especially for these cute little chicks. <laughs> yeah. So but yeah, so that is um, 
think there might be one more. So, yeah. Oh, no, but, that was the last one. Did you? Okay. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that kind of encapsulates some of what we do. Um, you know, when we think about regenerative agriculture, like, you know, I personally believe, you know, and one of the key principles is obviously um, composting, for, for example, like that and kind of my experience, I think um, integrating that not only from a agricultural perspective, but just from a waste management perspective. Yeah. Like I think that is super important and critical that we focus on nationally because, you know, by volume, most of our waste is biodegradable. You know, we think about, you know, mm -hmm. waste that we have or a lot of food waste that we have. Um, also thinking about in our coastal environments with like, um, you know, sea, like um, sargassum or like sea, like seaweed blooms that wash yeah. in our floors is finding like tangible ways of processing that waste and then contributing to our food systems. So, you know, that is like what I'm trying to stress and, you know, and also trying to practice is literally propping up our food systems with waste. So, yeah. Nice. I know we do have two questions um, from some viewers, one of which was actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask. Um, so Jewel Thompson Benavie from YouTube asks, hi, Dorlin, great show so far. What is your biggest challenge in your farm system and what have you learned since you started? Oh, biggest <laughs> challenge. <Yeah. laughs> well, I would say biggest challenge is distance because like I said, mm. I, I'm, I mean, the weather pandemic I think was pretty, it was easy-ish, you know. Um, I think from a personal level in terms of biggest challenges, just like the commute back and forth from like South Louisville to North, um, you know, the amount of time that it takes and just like just managing time. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Also, some of the challenges that we've had, you know, in the past is, I guess, find out, like funding. And, you know, last year there was... Um, we're kind of proud and happy that, you know, SBDC, like they had launched um, funding for like fish and farmers, you mm -hmm. know, or that was never a thing for most farmers is like, you had to fund your own farm work, you know, and it's like, when you compare that to other countries around the world where farmers get subsidies, mm -hmm. you know, I could speak from personal experience and from experience of other farmers is that, you know, they can't live on what they make on the farm they're not getting subsidies so i think financial um security is a huge issue for farmers nationwide not just for us um and i think some of the other challenges sometimes too um has been just like with our landfill for example um you know just the environmental like hazards that's been presenting in terms of air quality sometimes in the farm and then this issue of raccoons that i can't stress enough anymore but i think that is some of the some of the challenges that we've had now we've learned quite a lot um as well in terms of people's reception of you know waste management and how that plays in on the farm like i'm pretty appreciative of like you know the opportunities i've had with like the green school and the bahamas plastic school that they kind of be able to teach what we've learned on the farm or practice um you know learn quite a lot about how to raise chickens you know how to incubate and hatch chickens even though we're not doing that anymore so i think you know you i i think by just being in the trenches like you know raising um livestock has been a huge learning opportunities versus like seeing it on paper or going to like a webinar it's not until you like with these animals day to day the model just even producing a dozen of eggs. So, yeah. So I do have a curious question before I pull the next question from the viewer. Do you see yourself or maybe someone else in the near future? Because I remember we used to have, I think maybe two farms, like two chicken farms to the point where we were actually able to buy, you know, chicken from the food store from these farms, but obviously those are now shut down. So we're back to importing all of our chicken, I'm guessing. Do you yeah. see that? like your farm being that or maybe in the future us being able to get back to buying local chicken rather than importing it in yeah i mean i do see myself as like a significant contributor so i think for the start of the pandemic or during the pandemic when our food systems were like kind of you know in flux yeah and 
people were like, wait, we're not producing eggs in the Bahamas like that anymore. Um, so there was a study, I think, or a news article that came out talking about, you know, once when we had full food security in terms of just table eggs, you know, at any given time in the Bahamas, we had about 300,000 laying hens, like as on a total, you know? Wow. Yeah. Those average farms in the Bahamas might have anywhere from like, if you're a backyard farm, I'd have like 10, 20. I think, I don't really know much farmers that have more than a thousand like hens by themselves. So if you think about what the country needs in terms of just laying hens, we need about 300,000 hens like laying at one time. Um, if we were to even think about 1% of that, you know, I think um, I do want to be a significant contributor to that, but I don't think that one farm, unless they have obviously um, <laughs> of, um, commercial um, production, um, then yeah. So I would say definitely being a contributor, but, you know, understanding what the local demand is, is going to be a huge thing. So, yeah. So we do have another question um, from my wonderful aunt. Uh, she's asking, how easy is it to grow bananas in your backyard? Hmm, interesting question. I, I would say it's relatively, um, I would say relatively easy. Here's why, because when I think about on our particular farm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, we have the mangrove ecosystem, then it's our farm kind of in the coppice. And I'm sure you know about Bahamian coppice forest, like is a lot of potholes and rocks. Yes. Um, I like potholes. Like, I mean, potholes and rocks and caves. Yes. Um, and that's kind of where we find to grow our bananas are in the, like, lower levels of the mm -hmm. farm in the potholes. So I would definitely say if you want to grow bananas in your yard, maybe dig a hole so whenever it rains, that is where the water will naturally settle. Right. And then maybe filling in that hole with, like, a lot of organic materials, so, like, maybe dead leaves, um, you know, um, wood chips, etc., to actually help to hold onto that moisture. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like most Bahamians in like the family islands, they would grow bananas near to their cesspit because <laughs> that effort of coming off of their cesspit is obviously, you know, nutrient rich or high in nitrogen water. And mm -hmm. the bananas will definitely love that. So, I mean, once you find a good water source, it's you create like a hole that's deep enough kind of help to retain that moisture and mm -hmm. the organic matter. It's pretty easy to grow that out. Yeah. Nice. So we do have another question coming in from Jewel. Uh, she, we may have missed it. I don't think we did though. Um, how big is your farm? And also, what do you think is the best way to mitigate mitigate against these invasive and <laughs> nuisance raccoons? This may be a touchy topic. I don't think it's too touchy. So we have so our farm is about um, 10 acres. Um, we obviously don't farm on all of the 10 acres because a lot of it is actually like the coppice. So we, mm -hmm. we've we cleared down some of the land. A lot of it is still wooded because we get quite a lot of birds in that area, like mm -hmm. a lot of wobblers, a lot of white crown pigeons, a lot of migratory birds. So, you know, we've kept a lot of that acreage wooded um, and it kind of helps with the microclimate there. Um, so I would say we probably farm in terms of just footprint total, maybe on like an acre and a half total of that, like, um, you know, 10 acre plot. And then part of that, we also compost. So we need quite a lot of space to just accept green wakes, to chip it, mulch it, and then to have these piles. So I would say on total, we probably farm on maybe two to three acres total of like the 10 acre plot that we currently have. Um, now, in terms of the raccoon situation, um, <laughs> I don't know if we want to mute the. Well, I'll just be real. <laughs> you know, I and I know this might mash quite a lot of people's toes in the world of conservation. And I think we've probably had a chat about this on other networks. Mm -hmm. um, I think what really needs to happen on a serious note is that that species needs to be identified as a nuisance um, species. And then there needs to be a national action plan as to like, now that we've identified the raccoons as an invasive species, what is our course of action moving forward? Like, obviously there we've identified the lionfish as an exotic or as an invasive species to be removed. And thankfully there is a market for that meat or for, you know, um, for rack, for lionfish. Mm -hmm. There also is a market for raccoon meat. It might be 
people. I mean, there's a local market for raccoon meat, you know. I remember my grandparents or my granddad used to actually like butcher raccoons to eat. They don't do that anymore. But I mean, that is obviously a protein source. Um, the other ways that I think we can get creative with um, at least um, controlling the populations. And I think we talked about this is like potentially having control hunts. So the way that we encourage people to like maybe come here and hunt or, you know, wild, like let's just say oh, that's yeah. not an avenue for a tourism product, which is this hunting of these wild invasive animals, um, potentially. Mm -hmm. And obviously trapping more. Um, what a lot of farmers end up doing is that they actually poison the raccoons. Um, you know, that might seem very inhumane, but they're not a native species to the Bahamas. They directly impact, you know, people's livelihoods, um, you know, in close encounters with humans, as well as like domesticated animals, like they are dangerous and they can also transmit potentially diseases to humans and domestic animals. So I think that is a huge problem. Like. Luckily, I haven't had much close encounters with raccoons, but they are, they are really, they can be really aggressive. But I think there needs to be a concerted management plan. And I've asked about that in, you know, in farmer settings, and they push that question off to what are the conservation agencies doing? So maybe um, I will put that out in the ethos that, you know, <laughs> the agriculturists as well as the conservationists, we, probably need to communicate just a little bit more to kind of identify to act than to carry out a management plan for that species. Mm -hmm. so, See, I think an, an important thing to note um, to many viewers who obviously are not in the sector, when you think about conservation biology, yes, it is about conserving species, protecting them so they're not killed, but there is an aspect of this that deals with these invasive alien species that are detrimental, not only to the animals, but like you said, just to the, to the people that live there that incorporates the euthanization of certain animal species. And raccoons are cute and cuddly. I think we, the media has definitely played a part in making raccoons look acceptable. I don't, I'm trying to also be careful with my language, but I'm very, I'm a very big proponent for getting rid of invasives, and I'll say that publicly. And so I think it's because they have thumbs, man. Like, yeah, thumbs. So everyone thinks it's cute to have them. They want to keep breeding them. There are people that promote them as their, you know, as a native species. They're not. They're invasive, and they're not supposed to be here. But yeah, so hopefully. Um, the agricultural sector can get in cahoots with the conservation sector because as you know even with the history of conservation in the bahamas there have been um instances where euthanization of particular species have had to come into play um to preserve the native species in the bahamas like the abaco parrots you've seen that with the iguanas who are now dealing with cane toads like this is real and this is a part of conservation that that is a bit darker <laughs> than the tree hugging you know yeah. um I mean, and I don't think the raccoons only, I mean, they definitely impact farmers or people that work in farming and agriculture directly. But when you think about um, like our area, we, like I said, we are in the coppice mangrove transition area. Mm -hmm. We used to have a lot of crabs on our farm because they would come over from the mangrove or from the coppice to breed. We don't see any crabs anymore on our farm at all. And that's because the raccoons are actually eating crabs they're going in they're digging the crabs out of the holes and i mean i so don't have I mean, <laughs> so i mean it's it's actually like i said it's digging into people's livelihoods where in north Luther, you i mean people can't crab anymore because there are no crabs to catch wow. because the raccoons are actually eating or at least predating these populations of land crabs so mm -hmm. yeah wow that's powerful because could you imagine something like that being in Andrus, right? Like where we get all our crops from, you know? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> moving on, um, we do have about three more questions uh, in the audience. You seem to have really pushed some buttons. So uh, Denise, she asks, what about snakes eating the chicken eggs? Is this a challenge also? Do the behavior, but actually they, they, really, they don't? They don't eat the eggs actually. Yeah. Um, it's crazy because a couple of months ago, um, I've had really close encounters with Bahamian boas on our farm. 
And I, I love, so we love, like I said, we, we recognize and we understand that our farm, you know, we are in nature, right? We're literally farming in the coppice. The coppice is the natural environment for Bahamian boas. And so we've actually had, we've probably came across two or three like eight foot boas that obviously at the time had chickens in their stomach. And it was fine because that's just part of the, the cost of farming in nature. But they actually don't go after the eggs. The raccoons they do, um, but you know we keep the we keep the snakes around. We obviously just keeps we keep the chickens protected so they can't get to them. Mm-hmm. But you know when you think about regenerative systems, like the snakes are actually a population control for the rats that we have on our farm. Yeah. So they don't eat the eggs. Um, snakes they have an important role to play in our environment, and they have an even more important role to play in agriculture in terms of just getting rid or managing pests. Mm-hmm. So, I like component of keeping Bahamian boas, even though I, I'm not going to go and, you know, handle a boa because I'm still kind of afraid, but I see them on the farm and I'm like, you can stay, you know, we just walk on a different path, but yeah. Yeah. And I think but, another thing to note, um, even if you just want to compare like the impact of boas versus a boa will maybe eat one chicken and that's him or her for maybe the month, you know, for a, for a minute. But with raccoons, I mean, they just like, they whiling. So that's also something to consider, um, even when you start thinking of just impacts of like these different species on a whole. So Bahamian boas are important, guys. We do not, we do not support the killing of Bahamian boas. Yeah. But we do have a question in from YouTube from Lee, Lindsay Rigby. Do you practice hot composting on your farm and how do you manage your piles? And what is hot composting? What is that? So thermophilic composting or hot composting. So we, we actually practice three kinds of composting on our farm. So um, yes, to answer Lindsay's question, we do um, practice hot composting. Um, so to manage our um, piles, we obviously chip waste. So whenever we get, um, you know, people might drop off wood or just things from their yard, we would obviously chip it down, mulch it down. So it's obviously it has more surface area, like very small particles. Um, then we would integrate that with like manure waste and food waste. Um, we monitor the temperature of our pile mm-hmm. so they can get, compost piles can get really hot. Like, I mean, I've seen piles get up to like 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Like we're talking really hot like piles. So the way that we manage that is we obviously water every week and then we turn the piles manually because it's still, I mean, everything that we do is mostly done by hand. And then we also have a passive like aeration system. So we put piping in that to allow air to diffuse naturally because, you know, it is a living system. Like a compost pile is alive. There's bacteria and fungi in there that need oxygen to respire and to break down the organic material. We also practice um, vermicomposting. Um, So we utilize earthworms um, to produce worm castings and they are part of our, um, rabbit operation where they eat all of our, like, you know, rabbit manure. Um, and then they also help to process quite a lot of our food waste that we collect from restaurants on Hover Island. And then we do, um, some level of black soldified larvae composting where we take like meat waste, like fish, etc., to produce black soldier flies that can then be, be fed back to our chickens. So. Those are the three systems of composting that we produce. At the end of the day, they all produce a compost product that can then be put right back into the soil. So, yeah. And I do recall, um, I did have an episode like maybe one or two seasons ago with Nicholas Fox, who does the permaculture and composting. And remind me of this, because I know there's a, a fine line between doing composting properly and then having like a bomb <laughs> in your backyard. Is that, am I repeating that properly? I won't say, I mean, I don't know if a bomb is, I mean, I wouldn't say bomb, but like <laughs> piles, they can get hot, but they do catch on fire. You know, if you find like, and you think of the heat of the summer, if there's a lot of like dry material piles, like I said, they can get up to like Until it 160, 180 degrees Fahrenheit. This is like really hot stuff. And so if you have now the sun baking on that, there's chance of that to like, you know, to actually catch on fire if you're not actively managing the like the accumulation of, of waste. So yeah. 
I mean, and then also too, if you're not balancing like your browns to greens, then you end up with like a stinky mess that your neighbors will probably be like, stop this. So right. yeah, it's just important to know, like, you know, balancing the ratios of green and brown waste, understanding like when things break down, what happens biochemically, because if you have a lot of food waste just breaking down, it's going to smell, attract flies, etc. Yeah. But a lot of our piles, when people come to the farm, they don't even know that we have food in there. It's like, there's no, it's like no odor. And I think that's the thing is like, you know, changing the stigma of like composting as some nasty, like system or process, yeah. but really and truly it is designed to break down food waste naturally, but just in a controlled um, system or process. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Nice. I definitely, next time I'm in Eleuthera, I need to come see this farm. I'm, I'm really excited to see it. And I know Lindsay, she follows up with asking, uh, very nice, is no digging, no dig farming a method employed at Food Post? I'm trying to see if she means like no-till maybe. I'm not certain, but I mean, <laughs> we do minimal tilling if at all. Like, um, like I said, because we mulch a lot and we compost, so like every year we would just add a layer of like mulch on top and event that then at the end of the season that'll then break down back into the soil so i mean we do tilt a little bit but everything like all of our beds are basically managed by hand tools so like nice. rub hose just like um just like basically hose so we don't have like tractors that are like ripping and tilling the ground so we don't practice heavy tilling or tilling that much or at all um, so I'm not certain if she meant no dig, if that's what she meant by no dig, but yes. Um, well, hopefully she maybe clarify in a bit. And we do have one more question. Um, is it true that you don't need a rooster for the hen to produce the eggs? That is an interesting question. How do you balance that rooster ratio as well? But yes, how do you need a hen? I mean, you, a rooster. you do not need a rooster to, to produce eggs. Um, let me make this very, I'm trying to see how I'm going to phrase this. So <laughs> I feel like I know what you're trying to do. Okay. <laughs> so the uh, female menstrual cycle in humans, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just, that's a close analogy to yeah, me. No. The female menstrual cycle, um, you know, you don't need a, you don't need a male to basically, um, you don't need a male for your menstrual cycle to happen. You do need a male if you want to reproduce. And so in the world of poultry and chickens, chickens have a menstrual cycle every 26 hours, which comes in the form of an egg. Um, so a, chick, a hen, once they are reached a point of maturity, can be anywhere from four to six months, depending on the breed. They will lay an egg every 26 to 27 hours, and that's their ovulation cycle. So when that happens, um, you, get, you get a table egg. Now, that will happen regardless if there is a rooster or if there is not a rooster. Now, the rooster only comes into play if you want that <laughs> egg to be fertilized to produce chicks. Or, for example, when you're free-ranging, a lot of farmers would keep a few roosters in the flock because they tend to act as protectors for the flock of hens, or they would also give alerts to the hens if, if there is danger. So what I've noticed when we were free-ranging is that the rooster is like, I used to get attacked quite a lot by this one rooster, like physically attacked. <laughs> or they would always give off a sign or a, a sound if there was like a snake or a raccoon or a dog or someone coming that will alert the, the flock to like move someplace safe. So right. to answer the question, you don't need a rooster to produce eggs. Like mm. the ovulation cycle of a, of a hen happens every 26 hours. So... There's no need to have roosters. I'm so happy that yeah. is not for humans. 26 hours, no way. Um, but just curious enough, you said sometimes you'd have a couple, some people would have a couple of roosters. I know I've yeah. heard before, and then we're going to start wrapping because I just realized we're about to hit an hour. Roosters fight. So is there a minimum number or a maximum number rather of roosters that you would want to have to maintain like that, like I guess that territorial fighting yeah. and all that stuff? I mean, to be honest, like for breeding purposes, people would do like one rooster to every like five to 10 hens, just in terms of breeding. But to be, I mean, you can maybe get away with one rooster for like, if a backyard flock has like 20 to 30 like hens, maybe one or two, 
like I would say a good ratio would be like one rooster to maybe like 15 to 20 hens, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're not, you know, managing like two roosters that could be potentially aggressive. I would caution doing that just for backyard farmers. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I know Lindsay Rigby, I'm so sorry, it was a he, <laughs> was referring to no-till. Sincere apologies. I really shouldn't have made that assumption. Um, he was meaning no-till. So yes, it was the no-till. And he does say thank you for the insights. So as we wrap up, what sort of advice would you give to any viewers or someone who's listening later that would want to get into this type of work? Um, just farming in general, or I mean, so um, just similar to you, like making sure okay. it's inclusive to the environment and, you know, yeah. just incorporating all these different regenerative agricultural systems. Yeah. So like I said, I, I would say my advice would be, I mean, just incorporating six core principles of like just regenerative agriculture. I mean, just integrating livestock as much as possible and livestock doesn't have to be a, a cow or, you know, it can be something as simple as rabbits or just yard chickens, you know, I think some of the key things are um, when you think about farming is understanding the waste that you have naturally is really going to help with like um, any person that wants to grow organically or, you know, we have a country that does not have a lot of topsoil, but we have a country that has a lot of biodegradable waste. Mm -hmm. So what I think is, you know, covering the soil as much as possible. If you're, even if you have potted plants, if you're, you know, farming out in the field is just like covering as much of the soil as possible with like organic material. And that's really going to help in terms of like erosion, water retention, and just overall microclimate. Um, one thing I too, that I would encourage people is like understanding the importance that soil plays in like our human health. Like if the soil is like properly managed or there's good soil practices or husbandry practices, um, that's going to go a long way for anybody that's trying to grow a farm is understanding the role that bacteria, fungi plays in the soil. So there is really no need or minimal need mm -hmm. for fertilizers, et cetera. So, yeah. Nice. And do you have any sort of like lesson learned advice that you'd want to give just based on maybe an experience you had, like a nice little quote or inspiration? Um, I always tell my students, well, you know, um, like <laughs> well, watch over Apple for sure. And uh, roosters. Yeah. Um, like I said, um, you saw my saw on the image. What I like to always say is feed the soil and not the landfill. And I think that's, you know, it might seem like a very cheeky quote, but it's true. It's like, I think as a country, we need to start feeding the soil with what is available. Um, and not sending things to the dump site or to the landfill and seeing the things that we produce as waste as actually a valuable resource. So that's kind of my message in a nutshell to everyone, whether you're working in farming, I mean, gardening and conservation is thinking about a lot of this organic waste as actual resources. And last one before you go, who is someone in the sector, local or international, that inspires you and why? And I know I asked this the last time you were on the show. Feel free to say the same answer or note that person and then mention someone else. All right. So my same answer still stands, my uncle Richard. Um, I don't even know if he's on the call, but he'll probably see it probably. But huge inspiration, like I said, um, really, I mean, I can't say enough, but I couldn't do a lot of this without him. But just seeing in practice how he does upcycle and can make something out of like just waste you know um there are a couple other people that i think that i've either worked with um that has been a lot of inspiration probably more so thank you i would say um definitely um crystal ambrose and william simmons from you know from bahamas plastic movement and from the Popper island green school like they are huge inspiration for me not just as like personal friends but as like colleagues in the realm of like conservation and education like you know crystal has helped giving me a platform with teaching her students about composting and zero waste and will allowing me for helping his students with like green fridays like i think for us as a nation like you know just helping that network um you know alan jones obviously as one of my collaborators like has been super helpful but physically working on the farm and also with some of the 
behind the scenes things with like digital work. Um, and internationally, like there's this one guy called like Domingo Morales from Brooklyn. Okay. Um, they run this farm called Red Hook Farms in um, Brooklyn. And they're literally an urban composting farm in the middle of like Brooklyn. And it's crazy how like, you know, people can compost in the middle of a city, you know? I would be happy if there was more of that done in Nassau, you know, where you can drop off your food waste to this composting farm and then have, you know, people coming in and turning piles and like growing food. You know, I, those are the kind of, of the things that I want to see for the Bahamas. Um, when you think of how urbanized Nassau is becoming, not the Bahamas, but Nassau, that there needs to be more of that there. And so those are the persons that I find inspiration from locally, internationally, um, and I want to maybe just thank on a more public note for their help. So, yeah. Definitely. And I'm hoping to someday soon, I'll put this plug out there to get Will Simmons on the show. I'm pretty sure I emailed him. And if I didn't, sorry, but I have been trying to get you on the show. So hopefully we will get to chop it up maybe next season. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's always good to to thank the people that have inspired you. And they. I'm also inspired by both of them, especially Crystal, as you know, Crystal Ocean. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this episode. So thrilled to have you on the show again. Maybe we'll have you on the future when you start producing chicken meat, you know, <laughs> for the country. Maybe to talk about the raccoon management plan. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. But yeah, thanks so much. Um, thanks for riding this wave with us to all of our viewers. We have been a little over time, but we appreciate all the viewers. And tune in next time for Siren Sundays. Thank you.